Welcome to Voices of Recovery. I'm your host, Jackie Danziger, and this week we continue our look at young people in sobriety with Melissa, who experienced addiction, motherhood, and recovery all before the age of 25. From a young age, Melissa struggled with a defiant nature and an impulsive spirit, doing pretty much everything to excess, starting with what she described as a man addiction. I've been obsessed with the way men make me feel, getting validation from men, being in the company of men, and what that did for me, taking me out of my reality. With every drug that I've tried, including men, I, I get a taste, I try it for the first time, I become a daily user. <laughs> I take off running with it. Same with alcohol, I, I got my first taste of alcohol and had to drop out of school within two terms. In Melissa's story, we see a pattern of impulsive decisions. But not just when it came to drugs and alcohol. Melissa could be just as impulsive when it came to trying to do the right thing. I ran into my little stepsister. She wound up staying with my biological dad. Her and I have different moms, and that was a rough road for her. My biological dad is a methamphetamine user as well, and you can imagine the lifestyle that that puts a 13-year-old girl in when that's what she has to come home to every day. And he just wasn't capable of providing for her uh, physically or emotionally as a parent. And so I invited her that night to come and have a sleepover with me, and she never left. I was trying to think. I think I was 19, 18 or 19 years old. She would have been 14 or 15 years old. And within a matter of a month, I had taken over guardianship of her. Do you mean legally you became her guardian? Yes. Can you talk about, I mean, how that seems like a huge decision to make. Um, I think my mom knew that more than I did. I will say that a lot. <laughs> She's a very wise woman. Um, my mom knew that more than I did. I just knew that she couldn't stay where she was. And she knew that. And what else was there to do? Now, guardianship is different from custody. I was only able to get her to and from school. I wasn't responsible for her finances if she were to have passed away or, you know, there's stipulations to guardianship, but I needed both of her parents to sign over paperwork, basically relinquishing their rights to her until she was 18. And they did that. And I uh, remember that day, you know, I didn't realize it at the time. I was thinking of it as a triumph. And here's my sister whose parents just signed her away. Yeah. Um, that was really hard to, to witness that. Um, really just goes to show what your priorities become when you're an alcoholic or you're a methamphetamine addict. Melissa's intentions were good, but she was stepping into a role meant for an adult, setting into motion a series of events that would change the course of her life. She and her sister went to visit Seaside, a coastal little tourist trap, and quickly they fell in love with the place and made plans to relocate there. The town provided a change of scenery and access to an alternative school for her sister, but it was also 200 miles away from home and her support system. Again, on one hand, responsible, but on the other hand, impulsive. We basically walked the prom, which is this really touristy piece of seaside, for about six hours and moved there two weeks later. We found jobs very quickly without any prior knowledge of the staff that worked there. You know, we just didn't know what to expect. We're from these very sheltered families besides my sister we only ever drank, just barely used some drugs here and there. It wasn't anything extreme. Within a couple months, we made some friends through our work. 
it was this really uh, nice restaurant in Cannon Beach, and we quickly discovered that they were doing more than just drinking. They were doing heroin. And my friend that I'd moved out there with started using heroin very quickly. And thank God I had my little sister there because I did not. And if it hadn't been for her at the time, I definitely would have. Do you remember what your reaction was to your friend doing heroin? Uh, it was interesting. I feel like I was put in a really interesting perspective because my friends that were heroin addicts were functioning in society, to my, to my knowledge. They had jobs. You know, we knew them through work. They were able to pay for their drugs without stealing. Um, they had apartments of their own, cars. They weren't using needles. It was very PG heroin use. <laughs> If such a thing can exist. If yeah. such a thing can exist. Got it. Um, I was shocked to hear that she had done it, but I didn't see it as it being the end-all be-all. I didn't think at the time, like, well, this is going to ruin her life, which it did. Melissa managed to avoid heroin, but fell steadily deeper into the party scene of Seaside. It was just very drug-fueled, not heavy drugs, but there was a lot of cocaine, a lot of mushrooms, a lot of marijuana, a lot of drinking all the time. We had the biggest apartment because there was three bedrooms and we were the hub. I'm interested that you knew to get your sister out of the environment that she was in. And yet, you know, how quickly did it take before your household was also sort of a party house? It, our house did become the party house. And the delusion of it was that we thought we were so much better. You know, we weren't, we were able to still go to work and we were able to still pay our bills. And that's why we thought we were so much better. Made it so much easier for us to put ourselves on this pedestal above these two people who abandoned my little sister. And the interesting thing was, was up until that point, my sister had been so against being a part of it. And she was right there with us to a certain extent. You know, she had school and she was very, very dedicated to her school. Otherwise, uh, as long as her homework got done and as long as we were making it to work often enough to pay for everything... We didn't see a problem with it. We were having a great time. And I still, you know, as much as I hate to romanticize, that that summer was one of the best summers. It really was so fun. And I thought I was making these really amazing connections with these people, these kids, seeing a side of the world I'd never seen before. Yeah, I look back on it as a positive time, as much as looking back on it in hindsight being 2020, it wasn't. Denial takes many forms. For Melissa, it was the naive belief that she could take guardianship of her sister, move away from home, and use drugs socially without any problems. Denial says, you deserve this. You can do this. Don't worry about the consequences. There won't be any. But of course, there were. I wound up getting pregnant. And I was not ready to be a mom at all. And I just called my mom. Uh, and just cried and cried and cried and had to tell the kiddo's father and we weren't together. We had been broken up for a couple weeks already at this time. It wasn't even a breakup. We were just casually seeing each other and here I am with this baby now. And uh, I called him when I was about half an hour away from his house and I said, I'm pregnant. We need to sit down and talk about this. I'm calling you to tell you this over you, over the phone so that you can have half an hour to emotionally process this before I get there because I've had my time to emotionally process and we need to talk about what this is going to look like. What was his reaction? He didn't say anything. He just hung up 
And so when I got there, he was collected. And we decided at that time that we were going to try to be together. That lasted about two weeks. It was just never meant to be as far as him and I being together. Do you remember that conversation? What did you guys discuss? And how did you decide that you were going to move forward at that time together? But more importantly, just that you knew that you were going to have that baby together. At that time, uh, I think, you know, a baby is such a gift. And I was always in a family where um, my mom has had an unplanned pregnancy. My brothers have had an unplanned pregnancy. Both my stepsisters have had an unplanned pregnancy. It's a common thing in my family. It wasn't like a bad thing or a negative thing. Everything had always turned out fine. And I had that idea that everything was going to turn out fine. And I think we just wanted to run with it. After about two weeks, we realized that we just were not compatible as a couple. Um, we weren't even sure at the time we were compatible to be civil co-parents to this baby. And that was when a friend suggested to me, uh, why don't you look into adoption? Melissa took steps to pursue adoption, but made the mistake of not reaching out to the baby's father early enough. And when he found out, he had a strong reaction. And it did not go over well with him. It was absolutely not an option. It was never an option with my family. My family was completely against it. My son's dad called the adoption agency and shut it all down. I was very upset. I really just wanted to not be a mom at that time by myself. Not necessarily that I didn't want to be a mom. I didn't want to do it by myself. What were you afraid of with that? I was afraid that... You know, just the stereotypical single mom struggle. It's it's uh, something my mom went through. And I just remember having this really happy, great childhood where I was emotionally fulfilled and I never went without. But then I also have these memories of my mom uh, crying when she didn't think I was looking. And her telling me, no, we cannot buy that toy today. We don't have the money or eating butter sandwiches for dinner for two days, you know? And that never affected me negatively, but I know it affected her. And I just thought that wouldn't be what she would want for me, which I was wrong about that. She definitely wanted me to keep this baby. This is a complicated story to think about from the outside. It is easy to say, Melissa should have done this, or her mom should have done that. But as it was, Melissa felt trapped and alone as she realized that she was going to keep a baby that she didn't want and she wasn't ready for. And as that painful reality sank in, she started to slide into a depression. And depression turned into a resentment, and that resentment led to self-pity and self-destruction. Uh, I, at that time in my pregnancy, just, uh, I started smoking weed throughout my pregnancy, started smoking cigarettes throughout my pregnancy. I quit working. I became incredibly depressed and I, I just hated life at that time. I just gave up. And what was it like when you were home? Were you still with your friend and your sister? Where was your mom and your kid's dad? 
Uh, my kid's dad, I don't know where he was during that time. I have no clue. We very much lost contact um, after some very heated conversations about how things were going to go. Um, he did make it to the hospital, but other than that, I have no idea. My mom was as supportive as she could be. I don't think she knew what to say, and that's okay. My sister was excited. You know, I don't think she fully understood the gravity of the situation as I saw it. And we just kind of kept doing our thing until the apartment that we'd lived at, we got noise complaints and we had to move out. We moved in with a couple of our other friends who were very heavy into their heroin addiction. And so, um, how far along were you in your pregnancy at that time? Seven months living in a very, uh, questionable living situation. There was definitely needle use going on in the house. There was traffic late night, early morning coming in and out. Um, just a lot of like drug related activity, criminal activity. Did anybody else know what was going on? Just friends, really codependent, uh, enabling friends. And I fueled their codependency just as much as they fueled mine. I had one friend and it was kind of funny because her and I both grew up in like very sheltered family situations. So no alcohol, no drugs. We never snuck out. We got our homework done. We were cheerleaders, you know, we did extracurricular activities like crazy sports and drama and choir and went to Sunday study and oh my gosh. And then we both kind of separately started down these journeys of experimentation together. She was there through the whole last part of my pregnancy and her and I were smoking cigarettes together and smoking weed together. She was kind of the one person who I didn't feel the need to put up this facade around. Uh, like with my family, I had to hide everything from them at that time. I had to hide the way I was feeling, I had to hide the way uh, I was taking care of my body, hide the way um, I felt about what my life was going to be like from here on out. And with her, I didn't feel the need to do that. Mm. Now, how about from yourself? Like whenever you, you know, smoked a cigarette or started smoking marijuana, did you have any sense of guilt or shame? Or at the time, was it just like, this is my body and I'm going to do what I want right now? No, I did not feel guilt and shame around using anything when I was pregnant. I, um, I wanted so badly to get out of that situation. I'm not saying, I'm not going as far as to say like I thought that if I smoked weed and cigarettes, it would hurt the baby or harm the baby in any way, but I just wanted so badly to disassociate myself. And it's not easy to do that when that thing you're disassociating from is inside you. And when, when you are trying so hard to disassociate on that level, you don't feel a whole lot. I didn't feel a lot of anything. I didn't feel any highs or lows. I didn't feel guilt or shame. Um, you know, that all comes flooding back to you when you first get sober. After spending the last two months of her pregnancy in Seaside, Melissa moved home and gave birth to her son Thomas just days before her 21st birthday. But having a child did not magically transform her into a mother. This is uh, tricky to express. Um, I've talked about it a lot more in like very clinical settings and with my sponsor, I would say, but I felt this disconnect. You know, it wasn't necessarily like this big, happy, my whole family's here and here's this 
miracle that just came into my life and uh, everything's going to be okay now. And I just, I just feel all this love that I never imagined I could ever feel for someone in my whole life. I didn't feel that. I was just very aggravated at uh, what I'd just gone through physically with my body and I was aggravated um, that the nurses wouldn't give me more pain medication when I wanted it. And I, um, was pretty heavy into my marijuana addiction to the point where at one point when my son was in the nursery, I got up in my hospital gown to go outside and smoke marijuana at the hospital. That baby still, even after he was born, was just not going to be my first priority. I was going to make sure of that, you know, as if, okay, world, family, I had this baby. I did what you wanted me to do, and now I'm going to sit back. My piece is done. And what that looked like was I would, you know, it'd be 3 o'clock in the morning, and here's this baby. He's crying. I would pretend not to hear him, and I would just assume that my family was going to get up or my sister would get up, and they always did. They knew, obviously, that uh, something wasn't quite right, and they encouraged me, like, maybe you have postpartum depression, and maybe there was some of that. I guess I was grieving the life that I knew I was never going to have. I was grieving never being able to go back to college. I was grieving the thought of having to let go of all my friends because they're not going to want to be friends with me now that I have a baby to take care of. Did you express those fears to anybody? Like, I'm thinking your mother, who was one of the people that was encouraging you to have your kid. Did you feel like once he was born, you could tell her, I'm really mourning the fact that I might never go back to school? I feel like maybe I mentioned it, you know, uh, I, I feel like maybe I did say at one point, you know, mom, I have these fears, but I really think that a lot of the feedback that I got was around like, that doesn't matter. You made your bed and now you're going to lie in it. And that was what they knew how to say. That was, that was how you handled your business in my family. You know, you're a big girl at night, you're a big girl in the morning. And, uh, I, I just wasn't ready to accept that. For a while, it was okay for them to jump in and help when I just wasn't feeling it. And after a while, that doesn't work. They're not going to, you know, they have lives, they have jobs, they have things to do, things to see to. My child is not necessarily their responsibility. And so I became resentful at them solely based on the fact that they weren't willing to drop every single thing in their life to cater to me in my time of need. And... I felt very resentful, which is honestly what drove me back to Seaside. I stayed at my mom's for a while, and then I had reservations about going back to Seaside based on the sketchy place that we were living, and I went back anyway because I realized that if my family wasn't going to help me, I wanted nothing to do with them. Melissa's legitimate resentments, combined with her impulsive spirit, led her to pick up and leave her family. Her addiction was escalating, and as it did, she became increasingly unwilling to listen to anyone who tried to hold her accountable, even the person that she had once dropped everything to take responsibility for. My stepsister followed me back to my mom's and then back out to Seaside but she'd been expressing concerns. And as much as I didn't want to hear it, out of all of the people I didn't want to hear it from, I didn't want to hear it from my sister. Why? I 
think that was the one person I couldn't like hide my feelings from as much as I wanted to. She saw right through it. And as far as like numbing out any guilt or shame, I felt this disconnect to my son, but not with my sister. I think seeing what my sister had gone through already and what she'd been through up until this point in her life and now it was happening to her again, um, that wasn't easy to numb out. And uh, she made that very clear that that's what was happening. Ultimately, after we'd been back living in that apartment for a couple of months, she moved out. And that was when I made the decision to start getting my son's dad more involved in my son's life because I had no one. I was so angry and lonely that I had to take care of this baby all by myself, but really I did it to myself. I'd had all the help in the world if I if I wanted it, you know, if I'd moved back home with my family or if I'd reconnected with my friends who weren't heroin addicts, things would have been a lot different, but I had this idea for how my life was going to go and God damn it, I was going to stick with that. So how did you go about trying to stick to that? Well, I got in touch with my son's dad. I knew that from the little contact that we'd had that he was going down his own road of addiction at the time. I didn't care. I I figured it couldn't be any better or worse than the situation my son is already in being around the criminal activity he's already around. And I need a break and I need to be able to go to work and I need to have some time to just sleep in or get high or do whatever I want to do. And I deserve that. And so we started going back and forth. Sometimes I couldn't get a hold of his dad or sometimes his dad couldn't get a hold of me and we used the baby as leverage and there was there was never any civility to him and I being co-parents. It never worked smoothly. It was this giant stress on both of us. All of what's been going on as far as the way I feel about my son, my sister leaving, feeling disconnected from my family, having this friend group who has had these hard drugs accessible to me this whole time, all of that was what led to me trying meth for the first time. And it was everything that I'd been looking for. Everything. It was my youth that had been taken away from me from my son. It was the support that my family was not willing to give to me. It was blocking out the guilt and the shame that I felt towards my sister and my son. It was just the light in a dark place. And I became a daily user from day one, picked it up and ran with it. And that's, uh, that's where things started to get really criminal and dark in my story. Of the many character defects that Melissa would have to work out in treatment, one of the most surprisingly destructive was the aforementioned man addiction. It may sound trivial, but men affected her behavior and decision-making. It was a boyfriend who introduced her to meth in the first place, a guy she'd been seeing on and off again before, during, and after her pregnancy. A lot of our early relationship and our our whole relationship for the most part was based on that my family uh, never had a problem giving me money and he could access that money for heroin. I was spending a lot of time with him while my son was with his dad and it was during that time where he brought home these little white, little clear crystals. And I was 
totally against it. I don't know what I was thinking. I had been around heroin this whole time and here he says, well, this is meth. And I'm like, oh, that's stuff that makes your teeth fall out and you, you peek through windows and God makes you lose weight. That's no, don't, don't bring that in here. And, and then he explained it to me as it's, it's like heroin, but it doesn't make you dope sick. Why wouldn't you try something that's not going to make you dope sick, but is like heroin? I thought meth was the good stuff. Um, I hadn't been exposed to it prior to that until before the first time I tried it. And uh, it was like a breath of fresh air. I thought I would finally fit in with all these friends of mine that are heroin addicts. I have my own thing that I can do now. This is going to be great, you know? And I was using meth for three weeks straight before I completely abandoned my son with his dad. And the thing about that three weeks that's really horrifying is my son was in my care. And uh, the fact that I remember so little really is absolutely terrifying. I do remember making the decision uh, that my son could not be in my care anymore. He had been crying for God knows how long. I was agitated, I was exhausted. I just wanted to sit there and get high. That's all I wanted in the world at that point was just to be high. And I, I uh, couldn't take the crying anymore, so I got up and rather than picking that baby up to soothe him or I don't know, feed him, change his diaper, I just yelled at him. I mean, not just like yelled, but like screamed in his face and said, uh, just shut up. Just stop crying. I hate you. I hate what you did to my life. Um, I, I use the word horrifying and I'll use it again. I just remember it so vividly out of that three weeks. That's what I remember. And it only came through a lot of uh, clinical therapy that I'm able to talk about that, that piece of my story. Um... I wanted that to go to my grave. And I think a lot of people can understand why. It took a lot. I was in a I was in the extended serenity lane program and I didn't talk about that until the last two weeks of my 90-day stay. That memory for me uh, opened up a whole other realm of of uh, of my potential, I will say, my capabilities. That for me opened up that part of me that uses character defects as defense. That opened up a part of me, you know, that you never want to see in anyone else, much less yourself. So that episode led the way to me being able to completely abandon my son with his dad. It opened up my door to really intense criminal activity. I was able to lie and scam and cheat my family out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And as long as I had my drug, that was okay. I didn't feel any of the guilt or shame around it at that time. There was no consequences emotionally or in any other means. And that was that lifestyle that you grow up being like, you're never going to be that. Or you tell yourself, I'm never going to be that. That episode was where that lifestyle seemed appealing. 
I asked Melissa, how soon after this incident did she give up custody of her son? After uh, yelling at my son, I would say it was the next day. I called up my son's dad and I said, hey, can you please take Thomas for just a couple hours? Nothing big. I just need to go grocery shopping. And I never went to pick my son up. I blocked my son's dad's number, blocked his family's number, and that was it. And the thing about it was my son's dad knew where I lived. You know, uh, his family knew where I lived. His family knew how to contact my family. But they didn't try that hard to return my son. I think they knew what was going on. My life after I let go of Thomas um, looked like what I'd wanted it to look like since finding out that I was pregnant. I had no responsibilities. I had no ties to anyone but myself. Um, I thought that I was going to be living the 20s childhood that I'd wanted. So what life looked like was everything was about me all the time. I did whatever I wanted to do. Like the first two weeks or so after I left Thomas with his dad, I didn't leave the house at all for two weeks. I just sat um, and got high. And that was all I wanted for myself at that time. You know, you go through all of this experience of um, like giving up my sister and pushing away my family. And, you know, you can only numb out the guilt and shame for so long um, until you don't have the choice but to numb it out. It just, you, you build up enough of it, it becomes unbearable. And that's all you want to do is numb it out. The life she had imagined, one filled with friends and fun and a party that never ends, soon became something very different. The time of plenty, when there were still jobs and money for drugs, were past. Now it was weeks with no sleep and no place to stay and dangerous situations. I had been sleeping in a dugout and just kind of going back and forth from flop house to flop house. I was trying to come up with enough money to be a big-time heroin dealer, and none of my plans were working. I was honestly trying to come up with a plan to get more money. In a moment of desperation, Melissa reached out for help. I was at a Fred Meyer. I had just gotten my phone stolen, so I borrowed someone's cell phone. And if you can picture at the time, I weigh 80 pounds. I'm not wearing shoes. I haven't showered in two weeks, and I have to walk up to a man in a Fred Meyer's parking lot and ask him to use his cell phone. Thank God he let me, because uh, I don't think I would have let myself <laughs> use my cell phone. Do you remember what you said to him? I, I just, I remember how I felt when I asked him, and um, I hadn't felt any shame for a really long time, and uh, I remember looking at myself kind of in the reflection of the glass in front of the store thinking like I have to walk up to someone like a normal functioning member of society looking like this and ask them for a favor and how mortifying that seemed to me even a favor as simple as um can I please make a phone call and uh I I remember being outside the store for a really long time and trying to decide you know, if I should sit and wait there for longer and try to find the exact right person to ask, or if I wait too much longer, the store is probably going to have me removed from the premises. I did ask someone finally, excuse me, sir, can I please, please use your cell phone? I guess he did. I called my mom and, uh, 
that phone call, I, I just remember I had this speech in my head, like, mom, you know, my phone got stolen and I need to buy shoes and I'm at Fred Meyers. So you could just send me some money. That'd be really cool. And, you know, instead of all of that coming out of my mouth, I was just overwhelmed with emotion. I can't, thinking back on it now, I can't even imagine the guy's reaction whose phone I was borrowing. I know he was standing right there. I'd never thought about that before, but, um, she understood. She just asked me where I was and she said she would be there in two hours and she was. Did you just sit there for two hours waiting for her? I did. I like moved to the opposite end of the parking lot because I was so scared that the friend, I had already, um, received theft charges from this Fred Myers. And so I knew I wasn't allowed to go in the store. So I just moved to the opposite end of the parking lot and um, just waited. She came and picked me up. And so I went to her house and I actually slept on her couch for almost a week straight and just ate a really lot of candy. And we didn't think that I was going to need treatment at that time until I was in my hometown and I ran into someone who offered to smoke some weed with me. And within, I think, six hours of me smoking weed, I found a ride back to Seaside to get high on meth again. So my mom had to come back to Seaside to pick me up again for the second time in a week. It's about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minute drive. Is that because you called her again or because she discovered that you were gone and she was like, I'm going to come get you? I think I called her again. I think I got up there and realized that I don't have any money and I don't have, I, I have even less of a place to stay than I did before and what am I doing? And that me detoxing on your couch, mom, is probably not going to work. I think it was another three days after that and we were headed to Eugene. 12-step programs all begin with the same proposition. You are powerless over your addiction. Melissa knew she needed help. But that doesn't mean she was entirely ready to let go. As she packed up for the car ride to treatment, she brought just enough dope to use one more time before checking in. She assumed her mom would have to stop at a gas station eventually. But as they got closer and closer to Sarandi Lane's downtown campus, she started to panic. I'm like, well, can we like go get some candy, mom? Or can we, you know, let's, let's go shopping real quick. Or like, I'm not ready to go in yet, you know? Uh, and she's legitimately trying to drag me out of the vehicle. There is one time in my life, my mother has grabbed me by my ear and that was on the front lawn of this treatment center. And finally I have to, you know, explain to my mom, like, I have more stuff. I'm not done yet. I need one more. So I had to have my mother drive me around the block and sit in my mom's car with her in the car and use needles in front of my mom. And that destroyed her. Absolutely. She's still, uh, it's a sensitive subject. She doesn't like it to be brought up. Um, and that was a huge point of shame. That was the most fresh point of shame. Why do you think she let that happen? You know, instead of just like saying, no, we're staying here. I just drove you to this treatment center. We're going. Like, how, how did you convince her to let, let that even happen? At the time, I'd become just this master of manipulation. I knew that I could use my mother's love for me against her. 
I knew that if I sat there and I said, I know you care about me, and if you want me to be clean, you're going to do this for me. I used that tactic to get money from her, from a lot of the family members and friends in my life. And in this particular instance, it was, if you don't take me to do this, I'm not going to get clean. I need this. You need to do this for me if you care about me enough. Had your mom ever seen somebody use intravenous drugs before? I mean, that must have been really scary for her. No. My mom has never seen anyone use any hard drugs. She wasn't aware you could intravenously use methamphetamines. You know, she's a 67-year-old school teacher. She's never smoked pot a day in her life. I think that was just the most shocking thing I could have ever put her through. She absolutely broke down. Uh, so I'm in the back seat and she's in the front seat, just absolutely devastated emotionally. I mean, sobbing. I can still hear it in my head, you know, and I'm trying to focus on what I'm doing. And uh, she's literally a foot away from me. You know, she's trying not to look, but she can't help herself, you know. And so that was the last piece of my drug use before it was time to put in some work. Meth is a stimulant. It produces feelings of euphoria and invincibility. It also tends to keep people awake for days and drain their brains of dopamine. Even within the care of a well-managed, medically-assisted withdrawal, it's a rough drug to detox from. Gosh, being in a meth paranoia, you really do go through the same cliche things that you hear of. You hear voices. You see things that aren't there. You think that the CIA are coming after you. Um, my prime example would be when I first came to treatment, I was in the hospital unit detoxing. I came in pretty loaded. And so I happened to be in the hospital unit room closest to where the security camera screen was. I spent the first 24 hours of my stay in Serenity Lane peeking through the blinds in the hospital unit, staring at the security camera screen, convinced that the police were going to come from Seaside to come pick me up from treatment and take me back to jail in Seaside. Many of the addicts we talked to described their early days of treatment as a state of deep exhaustion, followed by a period of near sleepwalking. Malnourished, their nerves frayed, their minds just beginning to come to grips with a sober reality, the newly detoxed alcoholic or addict needs a place to rest, a safe space where their needs are met and they can just begin to heal and eventually wake up. I was in the hospital unit for five days. I was awake for the first 24 doing the said activity. And after that, I slept. I don't remember them coming in to do blood work, even though I know they did. I don't remember them waking me up to try to feed me. I was not hungry. I was asleep. And I'm not talking about like, like getting home from work and making dinner after like a long day and then going to a meeting and then coming home and like, oh, I'm so tired. Uh, when I say I got to treatment and I was tired, I mean, I was tired all the way through to every ounce of my being. I was emotionally, spiritually, 
physically exhausted. Um, I don't know why thinking about that feeling makes me feel emotional. Uh, but just that level of desolation is just, um, it makes me feel tired just thinking about it. The promise of recovery is not that you gain control over drugs and alcohol, but that you reclaim control over your own choices. The drugs were out of her system, but Melissa still had to choose what that meant for her in the long term. I still didn't want to be sober. I figured I could get clean for a little while. I could gain my parents' trust back. I could get them to start giving me money again. I could really make a go at this drug dealing thing, you know. I I think I could be a really great drug dealer. You know, then I don't have to be a mom anymore and my son doesn't have to, like, ever know me or even have an opportunity to be ashamed of me or who I am. And um, I can just keep living this lifestyle of no responsibilities. I don't know what happened, but I got into Serenity Lane and it was when I was in the extended Serenity Lane program that I changed my mind. I am defiant by nature. It's a huge character defect of mine. There is no room for that in that program. At the time, it was very strict. And when you didn't follow the rules or were defiant or didn't finish your assignments on time, there was more work to be done. The consequence for breaking a rule was you had to write a paper or four pages of a paper. And I tallied by the end of my 60 days and I had written 1,500 pages of handwritten assignments and what were called pull-ups, which were just the papers that you had to write. I, I had to write 80 in one day because I'd broken so many rules and I was just not getting with the program and was so not prepared to like trust the process. And at one point I got so many pages in one day that my counselor knew there was no way I could finish them all in a day. So he dispersed them to the whole group, which was mortifying. And we all had to sit around in a study hall together. We couldn't like go off separately and like work on it without having to stare them in the face. Like, I know you're writing 20 papers for me right now, but you know, I'll work on it. I'll get better. It was a very awkward study hall. It was very much what I needed, though. If I wasn't going to feel any shame to motivate myself, I definitely felt it for the other kids in, that I was in the program with at the time. Were people open with you? Were they like, this really sucks? Or were they just like keeping it to themselves and being quiet, angry? There's, there's no room for keeping things to yourself in Excel. When you're giving feedback in Excel, it's highly encouraged that you use constructive criticism. There's no point in, you know, just kind of beating around the bush and like co-signing or, you know, not really uh, giving feedback that they can do anything with if you're sitting there telling them like, like for instance, if if I'm sitting there reading an assignment about um, abandoning my son and someone says, that's a really great assignment, Melissa, you did that really good job on that without focusing on the actual issue of you were a piece of crap mom who abandoned her kid. That's the kind of feedback that needed to happen, and we were not willing to be on that level. We had to really be trained that, like, by saying what we deemed to be really cruel things to each other, we were doing the most for each other that we could to support each other. I had this, this exterior built up, this wall built up, 
It didn't get broken down in residential. And it took me a long time in Excel to be willing to to work on anything substantial. I was very interested in talking about my ex-boyfriend all the time, which did not matter at all. It did not at the time. It was not what I needed to work on. Uh, considering that I'd abandoned my son and my sister and there was issues with my mom that needed to be needed to be worked on. And I didn't want to look at that stuff uh, until I had an assignment that wasn't necessarily meant to be about my son. It's an assignment called Anger to Addict. You stand in front of a mirror and the person in the mirror is your addict. And you get to tell them everything that you hate about what they did to your life. I'd seen other of the kids in Excel doing this assignment and thinking like, how are they getting there? What emotion are they tapping into to, to be screaming at the top of their lungs? And I don't understand where they can pull that from. I'm not tapping into that. And uh, the counselor there at the time was so incredible. I hated him, but he, to this day, I consider him to be a magician when it comes to clinical therapy. You know, he guided the exercise and it brought me to this place of like full connection to my guilt and shame. And from that point on, I was just able to work on stuff, you know, and like, there's no guarantees. Maybe I would have gotten out after 28 days and been fine. But I, uh, with how little I exposed of what I'd gone through throughout my addiction in my 28 day stay, I highly doubt I would have been able to stay sober through peeling back those layers outside of a clinical setting. In Excel, Melissa learned how to quiet the voice of her inner addict that drove her use, but she still had her work cut out for her. Next week on the podcast, we continue her story. With no home to return to, Melissa does what many newly recovered addicts do in order to give themselves structure and build a foundation for sober living. She moves into an Oxford house. The idea of moving into an Oxford house, a house of 14 women and four kids, a lot of the concepts of the rules in the house were super foreign when I moved in there. I did not know how to live my life. And just when she starts to settle in, she gets a phone call that could potentially change everything. I got a call. It was Clatsop County Court saying, we can't really explain, but if you can come up here be here within the next hour and a half, you will more than likely get granted full custody. Voices of Recovery was created by Monique and Jackie Danziger and is produced by Serenity Lane Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers. Writing and production assistance by Monique Danziger. James Tyson is our production coordinator and script supervisor. Our show is edited by me, Jackie Danziger. Our theme and much of the music in this episode was composed by Sammy Gallo, with additional tracks by George Polly. Thank you, as always, to everyone at Serenity Lane who helps make the show possible. A special thanks to Bill Ward and Lane Frambies for their help connecting us with some of the alumni featured this season. Like us on Facebook and Instagram for teasers and episode extras. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're currently listening so that you can get new episodes every Tuesday in your feed. If you want to support our work, or help others find the show, please take a minute to rate and review us. There's a link for that in the show notes. We'll see you next week for more stories of rock bottoms, moments of clarity, and life after addiction.